Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm really pleased to say that joining us around a table in New York is Jens Nordvig, Exante Data Founder and CEO, and he joins us now. Good morning, gents. Thanks a lot. Thank you. So what's driving the resurgent stronger dollar? Well, I think uh, we had the usual catalyst, high interest rates. It's just that the market got very confused in January because there was no impact of the, the high US interest rates there on the dollar, right? So people start to change the framework entirely. But the framework that generally works is one where US interest rates do matter. So um, I think uh, right now, it's actually interesting what you point out, that we've had some stability in US interest rates market, yep. and nevertheless, the dollar's moving, right? So the interest rates was the catalyst, but now we have some additional follow-through, and that really shows that there was a huge short dollar position in the market, and we see it in, in the data we track. Real money investors got really short uh, dollar into April, and they're unwinding those shorts and getting back to the old framework. So let's be clear here. H have rates recoupled with the FX market, one, and two, how much of this was just squaring short positions in the FX market? Well, so I think there's definitely an, an element of short covering. People really thought, okay, maybe we have the twin deficit theory, the dangerous twin deficit theory. The dollar can only go down when you have a twin deficit, and that uh, doesn't work. But I think the other thing that's going on is that not only have we got, we got the sort of U.S. yield curve drifting gradually higher, but we also have doubts about global growth, which is very, very different from, from January when uh, U.S. interest rates were rising. But global interest rates were rising as well, and we had incredible optimism about growth in Europe, and that's coming out of the equation. We have had a lot of uh, weak data points in Europe now the last several weeks. And even globally, there is concern about are we heading into a more moderate growth phrase that will make U.S. growth stand out more. And I think that's important. So help us all out. So the, the sort of framework for thinking about the FX market through 17 was investor flows into Europe and places like that. Also, just structural issues, current account surplus in Europe and the twin deficits you mentioned in the United States. What's the framework for thinking about the FX market now that's going to really reap rewards through 2018? Well, so I, I would say we have uh, a degree of sort of idiosyncratic strength in the U.S. economy that comes from the fiscal stimulus and the fact that uh, the sort of very strong momentum we had globally is in doubt. So that's the cocktail that is a sort of classic uh, dollar strengthening. And uh, at the same time, there's, there's some of the flow forces, you can call it positioning, you can call it uh, a reduction in underlying flows that uh, are really not as dollar negative yeah. as they used to be. Is is the U.S. so big or so odd that flows don't matter for us? I get that flows matter for Swiss franc. Does flows, do they matter for U.S. dollar? I think they matter a lot, so I'm going to get a little bit nerdy here, but like in... Oh, please, in, we, in, in, excuse me, John Tucker, it's nerdy <laughs> you're, you're Monday. You're speaking to Tom Keen. <laughs> yes. In, in <clears throat> January, one thing that was going on was a lot of U.S. investors who had exposure globally, they were hedging it. So uh, they was essentially uh, changing how, how they ha have hedged those positions, and that was something that essentially removed uh, a, a source of dollar support. That is changing again, right? So uh, uh, it, it's, it's these sort of flow 
perspective mm-hmm. that that can have an impact, and that is definitely true for the dollar as well. And uh, I, I think on on a global scale, uh, whether you look at flows or not. Uh, you're going to be missing a big part of the picture, including for the dollar, if you don't look at flows. So we're starting to see some pain. And there's a flow story there, that's for sure, in emerging markets. Mm -hmm. There are some idiosyncratic issues in places like Turkey and Argentina, but more broadly, the big overweight into EM, especially in fixed income, was unhedged for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. They wanted the FX exposure because it looked favourable for so long, especially through 2017. That's changed quite radically, Jens. How have your thoughts changed on emerging markets? Yeah, I have to say, uh, like uh, one of the things we look at so closely is these global EM flow trends. And there's been a shocking shift, like incredibly strong flows in January, like very close to record flows, and then nothing since then. Uh, so um, this, is, this is another reason why it's so important to look at these flow metrics, right? Because the macro data is sort of relatively smooth. It doesn't change... Th- like black and white from one day to the other. Yeah. But the flows can, and that's an example we've seen, uh, really going from incredibly yeah. strong to quite weak in a very short space of time. Do you just presume higher real rates in the United States and when we've gone from Stanley Fisher's ultra-accommodative out to a flat uh, uh, Fed funds target rate, inflation adjusted, but at the two space, the five space, do you just assume a continued buildup of positive real rates that attracts funds to dollar? Uh, I do think the the Fed is, it's dangerous to say this, but I'm going to say it, it's pretty much on autopilot in the sense that quarterly rate rises uh, is what's going to happen unless we have something yeah, but, very dramatic. But Jens, come on, you've been doing this long enough to know <laughs> autopilot. An autopilot never works out. Yeah, I, I, I that did have second I mean, thoughts when I Farrell, used that word. Jens, John Farrell <laughs> is on autopilot because he watched 14 <laughs> soccer games this weekend. <laughs> So uh, that's autopilot. But think about it from the Fed's perspective. They it been, essentially achieved both their targets. And real interest rates are incredibly low. They want to get real interest rates higher. And they're talking about the dots, whether it's, it's three hikes or four hikes this year. It's going to be incredibly difficult for them to take a stop. If they yeah. stop at a meeting now, it's going to look like, ah, oh, the cycle is over. It's going to be very hard to communicate. It is going to be much, 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 much easier just to do one every quarter. That's going to happen for this year. It's probably going to happen into next year as well. And that's the rate effect we're having to deal with. And at the same time, we're having rate hikes pushed back. In a number of places, they're getting pushed back in the ECB's case, Bank of England's case, yeah, maybe the Bank of Canada's case, right? So that's why you have real divergence now. Very different from January, where all rates were moving upwards. Should we talk about a, a central bank where policy is certainly not on autopilot? Argentina last week. <laughs> Just wow. They have to improvise a little Three bit more. Three rate hikes. I mean, once you start throwing out 300, 400 basis point hikes, historically, I just think you're guessing. You're just trying to get to a place where the market starts taking you seriously again. Yep. Do you worry about the ammunition that some of these emerging market countries do have if we do get a rally in the dollar? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's definitely back to the old days, ERM crisis, all these EM crises we had where you, 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 you saw some countries having 100% interest rates in the overnight space, right? So we haven't had that for a long time because we've been in zero interest rate environment and EM countries didn't need to do much to have a little differentiation. Mm. So... This is a tricky game. Currency crisis, there's psychology around it. The central banks is definitely having to feel it out. There's not going to be any signs behind yeah. it. Yes, Dordvik, thank you so much. Appreciate it uh, this morning.
he is in the heart of where we fought the French and Indian Wars a few years ago. It is eastern West Virginia on the Potomac River. It is Franklin, West Virginia, population of all of about 750. And he is campaigning for each of those 700-plus votes in Franklin. We welcome the Attorney General of the state of West Virginia in the Republican campaign, and this will be Mr. Morrissey. Patrick Morrissey, wonderful to have you with you. Thank you so much for the effort to join us as you campaign uh, this morning. Have you spoken with President Trump in the last few days? I've not spoken with the president in the last few days. Let me start by thanking you for having me on today. It's an exciting time with the West Virginia primary tomorrow where there's a chance to really elect and nominate, I should say, a conservative fighter. And my principal competition is the uh, convicted criminal, Don Blankenship. And President Trump, as some people may have heard, yes. uh, recently tweeted, came out in opposition to Don Blankenship, and he's supporting me. He mentioned another candidate as well. But I think it's so important that folks get to the polls and uh, ensure right. that we can nominate someone who could beat Joe Manchin. The, the culture of West Virginia and the fabric and history of it, going back to Kennedy in the 60s and a Roman Catholic being uh, elected there in a vote of a very Protestant state. What are you hearing from the electorate? You're in the trenches of this. What is the hot button for the people you're speaking to across the state? You know, I think people in this primary are looking for someone who's a proven conservative fighter, someone who has the ability to get things done. And during my whole tenure as attorney general, I was the one that led a lot of the charges against the Barack Obama administration, defeating President Obama's clean power plan, uh, his Waters United States rule, his illegal amnesty. So they're looking for someone who knows how to get things done. I think that's the biggest part of it. And they want someone who has conservative values. They're tired of Washington running roughshod over their way of life. What are you or whoever wins in this primary going to do with a Democratic Party that's learned its lessons from, and I quote, we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. That was Secretary Clinton putting her foot firmly in mouth two years ago. Mr. Manchin's a lot more sophisticated than that. What is your strategy after the primary to be a Republican Senate state versus Joe Manchin right now? Well, I think the biggest thing that we're going to do with Senator Manchin is really talk about his record, and I'm going to contrast it against mine. I think I actually represent the best opportunity to have a contrast against Senator Manchin uh, because Senator Manchin, on the major issues that has met, that have mattered, mm-hmm. has really let the state down. And, and, you know, it's not just about supporting Hillary and Barack Obama, if you're Joe Manchin. It's that he really allowed Obama to run roughshod over the state coal issues and other matters. Right. He has been a a weak uh, person on Second Amendment rights and Planned Parenthood. And I think I represent the contrast in all those issues that will be much stronger. The other point we're going to make is that Joe Manchin was asleep at the switch during the beginnings of the opiate crisis. And it took me setting up a substance abuse fighting unit, 
And I've been out there working very hard because there's been too much death in our state. And that'll be a strong contrast as well. If you're just joining us, Coast to Coast, Patrick Morrissey, he's the attorney general for the state of West Virginia in the thick of this primary uh, vote in West Virginia against uh, controversial uh, Dan Blankenship. If I look, Patrick Morrissey, at Republican politics, it's you want your president to campaign against you. Everybody was in the Saturday Night Live opening this weekend except you. You They're going to call you up and put you into the opening as well is the challenges that the president is facing with this issue that issue this scandal that scandal how do you play that in real time in west virginia you know i think west virginians are very supportive of the president and they appreciate all the good work he's done on the regulatory front nominating uh judges who care about the rule of law uh this is a president who's accomplished a lot the trump tax cuts have been very popular in West Virginia. So the state really knows President Trump has um, its back. And so we're running with the president, supportive of his, of his policies. He's already been in West Virginia four times. I hope he comes back yeah. four more times between the primary and the general. Well, let me read the tweet here, Patrick Morrissey, and there's three other tweets after you. President actively tweeting today, angry Democrats, the Russia witch hunt, my highly respected nominee, CIA Director Gina Haspel. But let me read in full, folks. To the great people of West Virginia, we have together a really great chance to keep making a big difference. Problem is, Don Blankenship, currently running for Senate, can't win the general general election in your state no way exclamation point remember alabama vote representative jenkins or attorney general morrissey what what are you going to do to distinguish yourself from mr jenkins patrick morrissey in the coming hours you know i think that many voters in west virginia know that i'm the conservative fighter we have a record of getting things done now on the issues that matter Evan Jenkins has a very liberal background. He supported gun control, Planned Parenthood, Nancy Pelosi, John Kerry, even rallied for Hillary Clinton. So I think voters already know that's not the person who will give us the best contrast against Senator Manchin. And that's why I think this this tweet is really a defining moment in the campaign, because I think it's going to make it clear that uh, Don Blankenship should be rejected and uh, hopefully we're going to be able to get through this tomorrow. I feel good about it, but I think this presidential tweet could make a difference. Patrick Mercy, one final question. What did you learn from Pennsylvania? A Democrat, a conservative Democrat, took that district, that West Virginia-like district southwest of Pittsburgh uh, the other day. What did you learn about that, and how have you used that experience to get turnout in West Virginia? Well, I think it's important to nominate a person who is going to uh, get support throughout the Republican Party. And I have deep support uh, throughout the Republican Party. The conservatives are rallying behind my candidacy. And I think we can attract Republicans, independents, conservative Democrats behind this coalition to win. And uh, that's what I take out. You need to motivate people. Uh, And I'm the only proven conservative in this race. 
Blankenship's not a conservative. Jenkins certainly isn't a conservative. I think that gives us a good opportunity. Patrick Morrissey, thank you so much. Shout out to your team for making this interview happen. Mr. Morrissey, really uh, on the edge of West Virginia campaigning near Franklin, West Virginia. Uh, And, you know, just uh, John, John Farrell, I love when our teams can do this, that we make, you know, you and I are fortunate to sit here in front of the mic where, you know, it's one laugh right after another yeah there was a lot of scrambling to make that interview happen yeah the logistics behind the scenes um delivering and pulling through um great to get the uh the insight from what's happening on the ground ahead of that primary Diane Swank with us with Grant Thornton and I think it's a good time Diane you know the, the Monday after jobs report we can sit back and steal your Friday report you're going to publish for Grant Thornton. And we like to do that, Diane, and we're going to do it with consumption now. Consumption is, Diane, how much, 69%, 70% of the economy? Yeah, it's over two-thirds of the economy. This is it. The consumer is king. What is the partial differential of consumption that gets your attention? Is it unit? Is it the price we pay? Is it it the, the preponderance of a certain sector or group or quintile well, of consumption? Always, yeah, what is it? Those are, those are great questions. And what's really interesting is how much more broad-based consumption has gotten in recent years. It was really highly concentrated in very high-income households. Much of the expansion of what we've seen is a spreading. As jobs have spread, we've seen a spreading of consumption throughout the economy, and people who live paycheck to paycheck who now have a paycheck are spending it. I think what's really interesting about this year is we've got a low saving rate going into the year. Yeah. We're running about 3%. Um, the low hit in December, 2.4%, was the lowest since the height of the housing bubble in 2005. And one of the things that stuns me and worries me, even though I think it could give us an upside surprise on consumption, home equity lines of credit. I brought this up last week when we were talking. I walked by a normal bank, a regular bank, not a shadow bank, not the secondary market. This is a normal bank in Chicago. Every single window is painted saying, get your home equity line of credit, make your dreams come true, add your house, go on your honeymoon, go on your European vacation, Use your extract that home equity line of credit and use it like an ATM like we once did. To see signs on a conservative bank like that and every single window painted that yeah. way, it's like a drug dealer on a corner. And it worries me because this is the one thing we have going for us is the equity in our homes. We don't have a lot of saving for retirement, but we restored that equity to an extreme now. And to tap into it, which I think is likely to occur this year, that would bring that saving rate down even lower. I mean, so much of this, and I'm going to go to Robert Barrow in uh, Xavier Salahi Martin's classic Economic Growth, which is a great textbook about the actual mathiness of this. Do those models work? When you have a fiscal expansion, do those models work when you have a tax cut in what that does to consumption and to people's behavior, something Robert Barrow is expert at? Yeah, well, it works in terms of who it affects on the tax cut. So you have to start dicing the data, as you already mentioned, which income strata gets affected the most. We've got a lot of moving parts here. Oil prices going up, crimping incomes at the same time that what are people going to do with jobs, better credit scores, and easier access to credit? You know, I just never bet against people going into debt. 
I remember when I was in credit for 19 years looking at consumer credit, I used to always warn our bankers at the time that the best way to die is in debt because it means you've lived beyond your means your entire life. And unfortunately, most people behave that way. They don't behave like a life cycle model. And I think Mm. that's one of the things I'm really concerned about is that we could take on a lot more debt. And that's hard to capture in these models. The always diplomatic Diane Swank suggesting that possibly she worked for Mr. Diamond when he... uh, had tickets to both the White Sox and the Cubs with Bank One <laughs> a few years ago. Are the banks better prepared for a swank buildup? Oh, absolutely. The banks the banks do have a lot more capital. The problem yeah. is what's happening outside of the banking industry. Agreed. FinTech is a wild west of, of lending now, and we're seeing a lot happen outside of the banking industry. So far, home equity lines of credit have not come outside of the banking industry, so that gives me some reassurance they're going to do it with some responsibility. But the rate at which housing prices are going up is really worrisome, and how much well, confidence they have that that will continue always worries well, me. The dumb question, are we just pending our tax cut? Are we just getting out front and, you know, everybody's sitting at home on a micro basis figuring out what their vaunted tax savings is and we go out and spend it on the new F-100 pickup truck? Well, it's not clear that we all have those tax cuts, but um, well, I small think what's important is you yeah. actually made a really good point is many people will not realize the tax cut they have until next year. And so to some extent by borrowing, yes. Are they thinking that way? I don't think so. I think by the yeah. idea of remodeling and tapping into this credit um, is a different way of of spending, and it's a way of spending we've gotten accustomed to. It could surprise us on things like vehicle sales. One of the biggest correlations people say they want to buy right now is homes and cars. Even though we think vehicle sales have peaked, it could keep vehicle sales artificially right. supported as they pull their home equity line of credit out and buy a new car. I'm, uh, Diane, bringing up one of my favorite charts, uh, which is service sector and goods sector uh, deflation. Folks, this chart is so interesting. I'm going to move around some of the colored graphics and put it out on uh, social media, Twitter for Bloomberg Radio. You'll see it first. And the answer is finally we've got a pop in good sectors uh, deflation. We have less deflation yes, than we yes. had not so long ago. Is that maybe the shock of shocks for the next 18 months? I think that along with the service sector inflation, the two together change the dynamics of inflation entirely, which Jonathan pointed out at the beginning of the show, that's what we're watching this week is inflation, inflation. And remember, when you add tariffs to the equation, that's inflation without wage gains. And so it really is a complicated inflation picture and getting a much more, as you all already pointed out, the Fed seems to have a lot of hubris about where they're at right now. They may get quite humbled and in a very difficult decision as inflation picks up. And I hope, and it looks like wages are going to pick up, but we need to see it in the data. We need the whites of the eyes of wage gains in the data, too. Do they manage it all for top line inflation? I mean, the, 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 the religion is core, this Cleveland, that Dallas, that forget about it. There's top line inflation. (laughs) If you get an ugly top line deflation, does that change the Fed dialogue? Actually, I think the Fed has already made sure and committed to the idea of overshooting. We talked about that last week, the symmetry in the Fed's inflation data. They really do take core seriously. If we were to get some wild numbers that were consistent, they'd have to deal with them. You know, that's something we do worry about. But at the end of the day, they really are trying to get to this core idea because that's the best predictor of future inflation. It tends to converge to that over time because if you have too much inflation in something like oil prices, you slow down the 
overall um, spending pace in the U.S. economy and bring inflation back yeah. down. So they do know that. They do take it into account. But I think what's interesting is they're willing to overshoot because we've not seen the wage gains yet. And they don't, they're going to really be thinking about what is their target? How do they explain what their target is? And I think that's going to yeah. be where the next great debate is once we talk in June. One of the great values with Diane Swank, folks, is if you keep talking to her, you come up with a chart that you haven't looked at in X months where you go, oh, I just put that chart out. At Diane Swank on Twitter, you can see, I it, see it right out now. There. Oh, you see it right now. <laughs> Service sector like and uh, CPI you. with goods. CPI really vaunting up to a negative 0.3. That is a lesser deflation than what we've seen right. going back a good two, three, four years. Diane Swank, thank you so much with Grant Thornton. Always valuable to speak to Ms. Swank uh, about these events that are going on. We're going to rip up the script right now with the Atlantic Council, formerly the Asia Society. Jamie Menzel. Jamie, as you know, Robert Kaplan calls of Taiwan the Berlin of Asia. Over the weekend, we had Orwellian nonsense, was the quote from the Bush administration, over China's request that 36 foreign airlines change their references to Taiwan. Wow, can something quickly change the debate of the many debates that we have of Asia right now? Jamie, let's go through this to get an update on Taiwan now. How Taiwan is Taiwan entering 2020? How Taiwan is it? It's yeah, very is Taiwan. Is it still Taiwan? It, it's, it's very Taiwan. And the reason is that China and Taiwan traditionally have maintained this fiction that there is one China. And in the old days of Chiang Kai-shek and the Guomindong, the Taiwanese actually believed, maybe they believed, they were going to rule all of China. Now, the Chinese still believe that Taiwan is part of China, but the majority of people in Taiwan really think of themselves as an independent culture uh, and an independent, quasi-independent country if they had free will uh, to express their political wishes, which they don't. And so no, very few people in Taiwan think that they uh, will be, are, or want to be part of, uh, of, of China. And so everybody recognizes that the status quo is probably as good as it gets, but China is under, and China's leaders under a lot of political pressure to try to bring um, uh, Taiwan back into the mainland, in part because they're victims of their own nationalist propaganda, and they've fed that so thoroughly through the Chinese uh, populace that they can't now stand down. What happens, what are the consequences if China acts on these threats that Taiwan needs to be renamed by these airlines? Well, the, the, the way China does a lot of these things, whether it's Taiwan or the South China Sea, it's all a bunch of relatively small steps uh, that people say, well, it gives me a, a bad taste in my, in my mouth. It gives me a, a bad feeling in my gut. But what's the alternative? And so for all of these companies, they have to ask, is it worth it for me to antagonize China? Or to make this one change, which is a, a tiny little change on my or our, uh, our company's website. I mean, and Lufthansa, so, to, to, to mention your change, Lufthansa has changed their website to show Taiwan is a province. Yeah. yeah. And this is, this, there's a bigger issue here, and that's that when China is interacting with foreign companies, 
It's doing it as a government. But when these companies are interacting with China, they're doing it as individual companies. And that's why even the biggest foreign companies, even companies like Apple, let alone Google and Facebook, when they're faced with the power of the Chinese state, they're helpless. And that connects to the Trump administration. I have massive criticisms of, of what the Trump administration is doing, but it does make sense that the West, led by the United States, needs to do a much better job of standing up in the face of, uh, of Chinese pressure campaigns, because our companies certainly can't do it on their own. Jamie Metzl, what role do you believe that China played in what we believe to be a more peaceful and a more conciliatory North Korea? A very important role. Uh, when Donald Trump talks about uh, pushing sanctions, the Chinese are the ones who actually implemented the sanctions. And so without that pressure, it would have been very, very difficult uh, to bring uh, North Korea to the, to, or for North Korea actually to agree to come, to offer to come uh, to the bargaining table. China also um, facilitated the development of nuclear weapons in North Korea by not stopping it, uh, which China completely had the, had the power to do. And China still holds the cards because uh, Donald Trump, in advance of these negotiations with North Korea, has already given up all of his leverage. And so in many ways, Trump is the supplicant going into these meetings because let's say the meetings don't go well, he won't have the option anymore to say, oh, we're, gonna, we're going to implement uh, sanctions uh, in, a, in a tougher way because China won't be on board for that. Even South Korea uh, won't be on board for that. We've already rewarded the North Koreans um, with the legitimation of a leadership-level summit. So Trump, in many ways, has very little to offer beyond, and that's why you're hearing from, uh, from uh, the Trump administration that we're going to offer these kind of crazy things, like well, maybe we'll withdraw our, our, our troops in, in South Korea or do some kind of deal that would allow North Korea to maintain its, its nuclear weapons. So China still has a lot of influence and, and far more influence uh, than Donald Trump has in spite of whatever the president may be tweeting. The role of international inspectors, if indeed there is any kind of deal on nuclear uh, demilitarization, is that, uh, is that sufficiently understood? I mean, is the complexity, I mean, I was reading in the New York Times about how this is supposed to make what's going on in Iran look like a cakewalk compared to what would happen if they were to implement this kind of regime in North Korea. Yeah, it would be very difficult. But the real question is, does North Korea have any intention of giving up its nuclear weapons at all? And I've not seen any indication that they do. What they are looking to do is to become established as a perhaps more responsible nuclear armed state, kind of like has happened with, with India. Um, and so if there are inspectors, and maybe there could be, and certainly there have been in the past, it's not like those inspectors are going to be given free reign uh, to travel around North Korea and do surprise spot inspections. I mean, that, that in many ways would be just some, if it happens, would be cosmetic and limited and not at all serious. And that, that also points to this broader issue is that the North Koreans, they have a plan, a very carefully thought out and orchestrated strategic plan. The South Koreans, President Moon, has a, has a plan. It doesn't appear that the United States has much of a plan other than a bunch of tactical decisions. And my fear is that the United States is stumbling, the president, led by the president, stumbling unwittingly 
into, in many ways, a trap where we're going to be forced to accept the normalization of, of partial normalization of North Korea um, with North Korea maintaining its nuclear weapons. And because there's over, the, uh, over 100,000 people in terrible conditions in prison camps, we're also uh, going to have to, to just accept the, the terrible, totalitarian, brutal uh, behavior uh, of the North Korean regime to its own people. So, Jamie, Matt, so what would you recommend the administration do? Well, I think we need to have a comprehensive strategy for saying, well, what is the goal? And if our goal is uh, getting North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons, then we need to say, well, how can we achieve that? And the only way that we can achieve that is by two things. One is trying to change the, the uh, influences, the, the sticks and carrots on China, so that China comes to believe um, that it will be its interests will be better served if North Korea gives up its nuclear weapons. And to do that, we need to build an alliance with all our other allies in the Asia-Pacific region um, to say that, well, if North Korea, if you're going to maintain your nuclear weapons, then these other things are going to happen um, that are going to be not in China's interest, like building up uh, nuclear, mes- uh, nuclear missile shields in South Korea and Japan, uh, uh, trans uh, trans Pacific Partnership, bringing our allies together to mm-hmm. establish higher uh, standards for trade, and Japanese military normalization and protecting them potential nuclear weaponization, um, because that is also something that China would fear. But if we have just the status quo, everybody gets what they want, probably except for the United States. Uh, Jimmy Metzl, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with the Atlantic Council this morning. Just brilliant on Taiwan there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.